I'd like us to use the next half hour for contemplation. And I'll mention some other possibilities that can be used for contemplation other than the ones we have already discussed, such as the loving-kindness contemplation and the five daily recollections. It's very useful to have a look at impermanence, not as a word, but as an action within oneself. Decay, disease, and death are impermanence. All that is mind, dear, and delightful must change and vanish. That's impermanence. One of the three characteristics of the universe. But of course, everything else that happens within us is also impermanent. So it's extremely helpful to have a look. What's going on within? And recognize it as constantly changing. Now, the repetition and the continuity of it all hides the impermanence because there's a constant repetition of breath, a constant repetition of thought, a constant repetition of sensation and feeling and sense contact, and a constant repetition of the physical cells coming back together. Because of that, that continuity seems to spell solidity. It would be very helpful to have a look within and to see that there is only this constant change. And if one likes, one can, of course, as most people do like to do, try to find something which appears to be solid. Try and find it. It's perfectly all right. But don't fantasize. If you can find something that's solid, that never changes, that has absoluteness and not relativity, if you can look for it and then find it, investigate it again, if you come to the conclusion that there isn't anything like that, it will certainly help to recognize the rest of us oneself in a different way. It doesn't matter which one of the three characteristics of the universe one investigates. One can investigate impermanence, dukkha, or non-self. They all lead to the same result. But impermanence is the easiest one to investigate, at least for most people. It just takes attention, real attention to what's going on within oneself. One can use the outside also to help to support the understanding. Can I find something out there that's permanent, absolutely and utterly permanent? In the last course, somebody thought he or she, I don't no, had found moon and stars to be permanent. Well, we know they are constantly changing. We can actually see it optically. And that they are continually and utterly permanent, we also know that that's not so. That we can't optically see. So, if you think you found something that's permanent, look again. It's an innate human characteristic to try and find something that is so solid that one cannot hang on to it. Which, because we think that will support us. Nothing outside of ourselves supports us. Nothing at all, because it's all changeable. And not only that, it's only material. It's on the level of materiality. 
of world of the world. It can't support. Because basically and truthfully and radically seen, we are not materiality. The body is. But that's all. That which is really us is something different. So it can't find outside support. And yet we're always looking for it because we're feeling so insecure. So if you think you've found something that's really solid, have a look and see why you want that to support whatever idea one has. Because if one accepts the changeability, the impermanence, the transparency of all that exists, accepts it fully and lives with it, it's utterly relieving. It's not something which is difficult or bringing with it some um, sorrow. On the contrary, it removes sorrow. Because if it isn't constant, if it doesn't have solidity, what is there to worry about? We're constantly worrying about making things a little more solid than before. And we never, ever succeed. But we have to experience that ourselves. It's a personal way of delving into the depths of absolute truth. To do that kind of investigation, and it's entirely up to you whether you want to or not, you can contemplate any of the other items we have talked about in any which way you like. But if we do that, what I've just outlined briefly, that is actually the second factor of enlightenment, the investigation into absolute truth. It only becomes a factor of enlightenment when it has been perfected. That's obvious. But it is the pathway. That investigation, and I'm only suggesting impermanence at this point in time, because that is the one we can most easily recognize. If there's any resistance in the mind to recognizing impermanence within oneself, then you know already that the clinging is extremely strong. That too is an insight. Nothing wrong with that. It's an insight. I'll talk about the uh, progression of the meditation this morning. For those of you, particularly, who haven't done it before or haven't done it at all very much, so that you see where it leads to and for those of you who have done it and can do it, maybe as a reminder, not how to do it, but what it will bring us. I've mentioned a number of times that we have methods, and that methods are nothing but practicing. They are not the meditation yet. We need the method in order to quieten the mind. We need the method in order to look inside. And there are many methods. And some of you have not particularly um, been successful with the breath, so there were other methods to use. And they're very much also have a connection with our inner tendencies. There are people who are visual, and for them a visual method may be very helpful. Other people are very akin to sound and can use that even though there isn't any. So there are many methods. Buddha also used visual methods and he used insight methods. But one day, we have to drop the method. 
and get down to the meditation. It's a matter of time and a matter of practice. And if we have used this meditation course to get a little more concentration and a little more insight, if we go home and stop, we go backward. The Buddha said there's no way to remain stationary. Maybe if you have investigated impermanence, you might have seen that there's nothing in the whole universe that's stationary. Maybe you haven't seen it. Maybe you just have to take my word for it at the moment or look in your science books. But there's nothing in the whole universe that's stationary. Least of all, our mind. If we don't practice, it goes backward. If we do practice, it goes forward. We can never really rest on our laurels until we're fully enlightened. And this backward going is very dangerous because the mind makes up all sorts of justifications and excuses and very often blames outside sources. I haven't got the time. The children are too noisy. The weather is too hot or too cold. This is the wrong environment. The teacher's no good. The meditation method isn't working. Well, there are a few more. But these are very common and there are equally many which are just as common. And the mind, being a magician, can think them all up. It's very easy. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that the mind believes it. And that's the worst of it. And because the minute we believe that, we stop practicing. Or any of it. We don't have to have them all. Just one will do. So if we practice here and then find that this is something that has brought even a moment of peace or a moment of insight, if we don't continue, we lose it all. The peace gets lost immediately and the insight gets lost because we don't use it. I have already compared it to a foreign language. At the moment, all the German people are speaking and listening to English. So English is very good, no problem at all. But they go home, don't use it. It becomes more difficult again. And one that one hasn't used at all becomes impossible. Insight is a foreign language. It's a totally different way of looking at oneself and the world. And if we don't use it, it gets pushed so far back into the recesses of our mind and memory that it's no longer available until we practice again. Just like with a language, we go and practice, it's available again. Naturally, that's not a very good way of obtaining inner peace, of being a peacemaker. It's just the opposite, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's human nature. So, we very often have to go against our own instinctive human nature through understanding and wisdom what's really good for us. It's very interesting that we often think that which is absolutely the worst for us is very good for us. And don't see. I'd like to men mention and emphasize once more that every spiritual path is designed 
to minimize egocentricity. Otherwise, it isn't spiritual. It's material. Now, obviously, we learn already as children to share our chocolates. But it's far more than that. And in the Buddhist teaching, this is brought out in absolute clarity that this is the goal. But it's like climbing a mountain. We don't get to the top just by knowing that there is a top. We've got to climb. And this is what we do with all our methods. And if we believe our justifications and excuses, the ego has the unfortunate habit of strengthening itself. If we don't keep it in check over and over again and don't believe all our own excuses, it is such an insidious, and ingrained rock of belief and feeling that spreads its tentacles everywhere within our mind, within our heart. Eventually, sometimes we notice it ourselves and we counteract it. But if we don't practice, if we believe that there are so many other things to do and other ways of doing it, then these tentacles become more and more widespread. We notice them, we notice this happening, we can tell that it's happening when we have more difficulties with our surroundings when our relationships with other people deteriorate, then we have a very certain way of telling that we are on that path. If we don't have many relationships and can't tell from that, maybe somebody will be kind enough to tell us. But if we're already sliding downward on that mountain, we may not be very much inclined to listen to anybody who yells stop. This happened in the Buddhist time. This happens any time. Having been in a course such as this and having tried to master the mind means that there are certain enormous advantages which we can gain if we even master the mind a little, not to speak of mastering the mind totally. Watching the breath and actually staying on it or loving-kindness meditation and actually feeling it or even part by part going through it and becoming concentrated. <coughs> Equally possible in the walking meditation. It's not the method. It's the concentration that does it. And the concentration is not something that we can grasp at or try to bring to us. It's just the opposite. It's letting go of everything that's disturbing it falling into it, letting everything be as it is, non-judgmental awareness, just being there, no judgments and no wantings. Can you tell from that that that's already a reduction of egocentricity, no judgments, and no wanting. It's a totally different way of dealing with oneself. Most of the time, morning to night, we have either 
judgments or wanting or rejecting. Meditation, if it's supposed to happen, that reduction has to take place. It's not an elimination of the ego illusion at all. It's just a momentary reduction. It's not me being the most important item in the whole universe. When said like that, it does sound absurd, doesn't it? But it's just falling into the stream of all that's going on and letting it all be and thereby being instead of wanting and becoming. Basically, there's nothing and nobody we can become. We already are all that that we ever need be, but we don't know it. It's totally hidden, overshadowed, and covered with judgments, wantings, reactions, negativities, cravings, all the sort of thing that goes on all the time. Justifications, excuses, anything that we can, all covers it. That we are all that one can be. So how do we get there to all that we can be if we are it already? We've got to let go of all the rest. So the key word, if you want a key word for spiritual life, let go. That's all there is to it. Well, nice and short and easy to remember and hard to do. Letting go, particularly of fantasies, Fantasies are pleasant. They give us sort of an, a little bit of uh, interest to all this dullness of mastering the mind. So we can fantasize a bit and make up nice stories and then believe them. If we make up nice stories just in order to become a little more joyous, it's okay. But don't believe them. <laughs> I mean, if you sit in a movie or in front of the television and there is a sort of a nice story going on, it's a, one of the, uh, not especially a news item, but just a story. I mean, we don't believe that either. It's a movie. That's it. We've got movies going on in the mind. And uh, sometimes we may be able to use them in order to have a little more joy if we are becoming very negative and disliking things. Fine. It's an intermediate step to substitution with the opposite. But if we start believing all that, we're lost. Because none of that fantasy will ever come true. We are already the truth. All we have to do is find it by removing all the external and internal difficulties which are acting like a huge heap of discarded rubbish which is in front of the doorway leading inward. We can get to that doorway leading inward by concentration. Because, as I said, concentration already demands a reduction of egocentricity. It demands non-judgment and non-wanting. So, it demands a certain amount of purity, inner purity. And therefore, having just sufficient of that will be able to enter within. And that's where meditation leads to. 
the human mind, they're all alike. We make up our own individual stories, naturally. The movies are a little bit different, but our capacity and our potential is all the same for everybody. So that whether it has been called prayer, meditation, contemplation, um, inner observation, it doesn't matter. There have been many names given to this. But it's always come to the same result, which the Buddha calls the meditative absorptions, which is a long and complicated double word, and in Pali is called the jhanas. J-H-A-N-A makes it much easier, just two syllables. And he talks about them in his discourses, which are, as I said, all written down, all available in English, as the pathway, not as the goal, but as the pathway. And it's the third stage of happiness. First one, sense contact. Second one, the four supreme emotions. Third one, the jhanas. There are four altogether, four stages of happiness. So it's certainly not the goal, but it's an essential means. First of all, we do need a happy mind to meditate. But secondly, it brings so many new understanding and insight that the fourth stage of happiness, which is insight, is possible. I've already compared the distracted mind or the one that is just very momentarily concentrated or that follows everything that's going on with an ocean wave where if we are under the ocean wave all we can see is water. We have to wait till the ocean subsides, everything becomes smooth and we can look into the depth. It's the same here with the mind. We have to wait till it all subsides, becomes nice and smooth, and we can look into the depth if we want to. Now, a person who is able to meditate with the jhanas does not always want to see the depth, but most of them do. Very few people, particularly Westerners, are satisfied with just the wonderful states of altered consciousness, and here we've got this famous word, that the jhanas provide. The Buddha did them in his practice. When he went into the forest, he was with two teachers, for six years and did all the jhanas from one to eight and realized very pragmatically that it was fine while he was in meditation but when he came out there was the same dukkha again that he had before and any one of us can recognize that there's no difficulty so there is that incentive then to use that peacefulness and clarity of the mind which the jhanas provide to recognize another reality, not the one that we live with. As long as we don't recognize that this reality that we live with is neither fulfilling nor all there is, we won't be looking for another one. But the horizon is too limited. We have made our own boundaries. 
and can't look beyond them until we have sufficient letting go of the boundary of me so that the horizon widens automatically. And that can only happen through the meditative path. The rest, what we can understand, it's all intellectual. And if in being intellectual would bring enlightenment, we'd have a whole lot of enlightened university professors. Be marvelous, but we haven't got them. It just isn't the same thing. It's a different pathway, which does not mean that one shouldn't be a university professor. Here in Germany, it's very well paid. (laughs) And lots of holidays. (laughs) Through the meditative path, if we can actually concentrate for a while, we come to this doorway. Now, before we come to this doorway that opens the inner reality, two things take place, which are actually part and parcel of every meditation, which is even slightly concentrated. And the first one I mentioned very briefly. I'll detail it a little more. Our third hindrance now we've talked about the hindrances yesterday first one was uh, sensual desire second one was ill will third one sloth and torpor laziness and lassitude of the mind now that is counteracted in every meditative endeavor no matter how little concentration there is by going back to the meditation subject over and over again. Now, obviously, if we discipline the mind to do this, and if we urge the mind and encourage the mind not to be discursive, but to stay in one spot, it gains strength. And eventually, it's strong enough to stay where we want it to stay. And eventually, it's strong enough to think what it wants to think and not to think what it doesn't want to think. Obviously, anyone who can do that would never be unhappy because only a fool becomes involuntarily unhappy. We do it involuntarily. So, if we become really master of the mind, Unhappiness could never enter. But that's the top of the mountain. We've got to keep climbing. So as we repeatedly put the mind back to the meditation subject, we strengthen it. And we also have a sort of a handle on that we don't have to think things we don't want to think. It's totally unnecessary. We can just happily and joyfully follow the breath or do the loving kindness or whichever method we've chosen or the part by part. We don't have to think about what's going to happen next week and how am I going to get out of this one and do something else and we don't have to think all that. We can actually be there. So the more we do that, the more we also counteract lassitude and um, laziness of the mind, which the Buddha called being in prison, for which we have our own key, which we can unlock. And a mind which is actually trained, and anyone can train the mind through the meditative path, if it's actually trained it can withstand the vicissitudes and difficulties which 
are in everybody's life with ease because it's trained to think along the pathways that it wants to think. So that's one of the advantages of meditation on any level that we're actually training it, training the mind and strengthening it, counteracting the third hindrance. That third hindrance also, the Buddha talked about it as one which is greatly helped if one knows more about the Dhamma, which means that one has more understanding and more knowledge not necessarily wisdom, but knowledge. It's also helped by that, which we can do in daily life. And the next one that happens in any meditation, and particularly, of course, when we do get concentrated, is when we can actually stay on the meditation subject. Let's say we can stay on the breath, or we can stay on the color, whichever we have chosen, that our skeptical doubt, our fifth hindrance, is greatly reduced. The skeptical doubt which says, I can't do this, or this is the wrong method, or there must be something better or easier, or I'll do it at home, or, well, enough, huh? Anything. The doubt which creeps into the mind and which we put outside of ourselves. There is something outside which is causing us to have doubt and again we believe it and justify it and stop practicing. It's an insidious difficulty because the mind being a magician can find something wrong in anything. Even the Buddha, who was fully enlightened, was accused by some unfortunate people that he was having an illicit affair with someone, which was utter nonsense. But he was accused of all sorts of um, unpleasantnesses which people thought up, justifying their own lack of devotion and practice. It's so easy to do. We don't have to go far. Not only it didn't only happen to the Buddha, it happened to Jesus, who was killed for his teaching. Totally misunderstood and people justified their misunderstanding. So we can do this easily. I mean, the human mind can do the same thing all the time. But if the doubt become, if we don't do anything about the doubt, if we allow it to grow within, and that's not only the self-doubt. It's also the doubt in that one is doing the right thing, that the method is good. It blocks the path completely. It's like a huge boulder on this climb up the mountain. And once we, ha we have put that boulder there, we're doing it ourselves, of course. It's very difficult to get around it. But one of the things which helps us is the ability to concentrate, even if it's only for a short period of time. Because the mind will say, oh, it does work. Oh, well, maybe the Buddha did know what he was talking about. Or maybe the teacher does have the right method. Or maybe it doesn't matter whether somebody is coughing. Maybe I can do it anyway. Or whatever it is that had been spoiling the whole morning before. And 
if we continue to concentrate and actually do get inside of ourselves, the doubt is greatly diminished. It only disappears completely when we have the first path moment, which I've already said means our first personal experience of nobody being there. First experience of Nibbana. Then it totally disappears. But until then, a mind races around trying to find excuses. But here, it has its first inkling of allowing itself to have confidence, trust. You see, one of the very unfortunate aspects of this skeptical doubt is the fact that we think we ourselves know and when the ego is temporarily released from its duties, meditation can appear. It has to release itself from its duties. And it takes them up with great joy again after the meditation. Skeptical doubt is compared by the Buddha to wandering in the desert without any provisions, without a map, going around in circles, and in the end being overrun by bandits and losing one's life. Now, skeptical doubt, you can see, he designated as something very unfortunate because it really blocks there's no way of giving oneself. And the less we can give ourselves, the less we have a chance to reduce ego and the less we have a chance to be on the spiritual path. The whole blockage which blocks us from being what we already are is our egocentricity. That's all. There's nothing else. We can call it whatever it is. And those five hindrances, of which I've now explained four, are all part and parcel of the ego showing itself. It's nothing to blame. It's everything to recognize. The more we know, the more often ability we have to work with it. If we don't know it, there's nothing we can do. Now, this skeptical doubt, the Buddha also compared to a little lake which is full of um, mud. One can't see one's likeness in the mud. One walks around in a sort of a dualistic way if one has a lot of skeptical doubt. On one hand, it all sounds quite reasonable. And who knows, it may work. And on the other hand, one has all one's ideas and views and opinions and knowledge, everything one has brought along and is trying to make rhyme and reason out of all that. It's totally unnecessary. We don't have to make rhyme and reason out of everything we've heard and known and read. All we have to do is give ourselves totally to what is happening in this moment. And then we'll know. I already mentioned that knowledge isn't actually wisdom. Wisdom is something entirely different. It's the understood experience. So we have two of the hindrances which are counteracted through the meditation such as it is without having to be very concentrated. The uh, initial application to the meditation subject and then the continued application to the meditation subject are also compared to a gong. 
she first hit the gong and then hear the sound afterwards. So the hitting of the gong is the initial and one might have to hit it over and over again if it doesn't have a sound going on. And then the sound continuing is the continued application to the meditation subject. Again, one of the uh, remedies for skeptical doubt is knowing and understanding more of the spiritual teaching and delving into it more. But also, one of the remedies which the Buddha mentioned, and that's for daily life, is being together with wise and mature people who are also on, of course, a spiritual path, so that one can, if necessary, get guidance. Most people need guidance. There are very few spiritual geniuses around. There always are. In every century, there are a few. And that also removes that insidious difficulty of believing I know better and more and the other person or the teaching or whatever it is doesn't know. Because if we have a wise and mature person to ask, we will certainly have a connection to something which may be a little more advanced than our own mind. So these are the remedies in everyday life and they are of course greatly supported by the meditation practice, those two hindrances. And they are also, as I mentioned yesterday, something we can recognize when we label our content of mind. We can recognize any of those hindrances if we pay attention. Am I now beset by skeptical doubt or by laziness of the mind? Because I just like to have pleasurable input. I don't want to strain. I don't want to make effort. Is it laziness of the mind? Because obviously meditation is effort. Quite a quite a chunk of effort and labeling and substituting is also effort so we can recognize am I beset by that third hindrance of loss and torpor of the mind or by the fifth one skeptical doubt and if we label like that as the fourth foundation of mindfulness we will be able to counteract that we can see it doesn't give us any real happiness. They're all momentary band-aids. They're never that real operation that the Buddha actually had in mind. The support system of the meditation is indispensable. The support system of the mindfulness by understanding one's own thought processes is indispensable. One is in the meditative practice, one is in daily life. They have to work together. Now we have four hindrances and we have two of them being counteracted by specific events in the meditation. Now, if we can actually stay on the meditation subject for sufficient length of time, and we'll just use the breath as, a, as an example, and sufficient doesn't mean a particular number of minutes. For some people, it's longer than for others. But it's got to be without thinking of something else. And it can be 
color, it can be sound, it can be part by part, it can be loving kindness, it can be anything where the mind stays and doesn't give an internal discourse. Who knows, some of the discourses might be quite all right, but uh, it's not the time and place for them when we start to meditate. So, if it's possible to do that, then, from a practical standpoint, what happens is that the breath becomes very fine because the mind has become fine. When we're in a hurry and uh, maybe excited or upset, then the breath is quite heavy. But when the mind is quiet and doesn't have any of those waves in it, then the breath is also fine. And we can recognize that if we've been using the breath. It's a moment of recognition. Sometimes it becomes so fine that we can't find it. And the instinctive reaction to that is to take a deep breath, which is a wrong thing to do. Don't. It's instinctive. Practically everybody does it until they've been told not to. We don't stop breathing. By being concentrated, the breath is very fine and we continue to breathe through our pores. There's no way we can stop that. But the mind also becomes anxious, becomes afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of losing control. And this, of course, is a total misconception. Because as long as we haven't trained the mind to think what we want to think and not to think what we don't want to think, we're never in control. We're letting all sorts of outer conditions influence us, particularly our own mind projections. We let all that influence us. We have no control whatsoever. The person who is totally in control of the mind will never have a moment of hate or greed because it would be foolish to have that. So losing control is not even a topic. We haven't got control. But we think we do. We think we do because we're thinking. And fail to recognize that we're thinking along the lines of either our sense input or our reaction or the influence we have from something that's happening or from something that we would like to have or to get rid of. Fail to recognize that totally. So there's nothing to lose control of. We haven't got it. And besides, this is exactly the point where the ego rears its ugly head. If we would like to diminish our egocentricity, that's the moment where we can actually do something with it. As long as we feel afraid to let go and to just be with this different moment, so long we're trying to find the support for the me. I'm only using ego as another word for me or I or self, just interchangeable words. No particular um, special meaning to any of them. So if we can approach the concentration from the beginning with the understanding that we've got nothing to lose and everything to gain, it might work a little better. And as we come to the point where there is this very fine or not-to-be-found breath to allow the mind to go inward, within, we come to the point where we can open the door to our inner reality, cross the threshold and become aware of our inner purity. 
which first shows itself in the lightful sensation. In the translations, it's called rapture, but that, in my opinion, is too strong a word. It may not be rapturous, because that's a very strong word. It is delightful sensation in Pali, Piti, P-I-T-I. And obviously, it's not something that we are putting in there. It's something that's within us always. It's always there. Otherwise, we couldn't get at it. We get at it because we have used our concentration as a key and have had that key in hand long enough and steady enough to fit it into the keyhole and unlocking within a door mind you I don't mean that literally eh? and uh, getting across the threshold within that's why we can at first briefly later on demand become aware that there's something within us which if we haven't done it before is totally unknown to us once we do it as a matter of course practice it daily one would be very surprised if one couldn't get at it it's um, a very useful first step from many angles one of its extreme usefulnesses is the fact that we realize immediately usually without being told but more helpful maybe if one is being told that what we are looking for in the world apparently is already within us we don't have to look for it out there if we get it delightful sensation wonderful but we depend when we get it from outside and here we're independent from the outside strictly only depend upon our own concentration and being independent from outside sources means already a certain measure of liberty and this is what the Buddha was teaching liberation not women's liberation just liberation human liberation which is fine isn't it human liberation and this is already a certain measure of it it's liberty of having to look for that which provides delightful sensation as another aspect to it the delight that we can feel is far greater than any delightful sensation that we get through sense contact it has a certain relationship to it and that's why the first four jhanas and the Buddha gave them numbers very pragmatic just one, two, three, four are called also the Rupa Janus, which Rupa is actually body but it means the fine material absorptions because there's a certain relationship to the states of being which we can have through the material world but the dependency is there in the material world and also the states of um, consciousness which we have in the meditative path is one which is much more subtle than the ones we get in response to pleasant sense contact so even just having a brief acquaintance with this very first 
jhana brings that kind of insight but it does more than that it counteracts automatically our second hindrance ill will it's impossible to be angry rejecting resentful when we are completely beset by delightful sensation and we can't do both and of course the more often we do it and the more steady we do it the less of anger and resentment and rejection and wrong justifications for our rejections will arise they don't disappear that comes much later on the path but they certainly get diminished because of the fact that we know we have found a home for the mind we've always had a home for the body we probably haven't lived on the street so we've had a home for the body and in that home we have all the necessary equipment to keep the body comfortable we have easy chair we have bed we have bathroom to clean it we have kitchen to cook for it we have uh, things that can be distracting giving some um, distraction from our thought processes so we have all sorts of comforts roof over, over our head mainly which keeps out the inclement weather but a home for the mind can't be found until we're able to go inside even if we're sitting in the most comfortable easy chair the mind is still churning it's still telling stories and the least that we'll do is tell distracting stories mostly it doesn't even do that it plans it dislikes it rejects it wants it remembers it worries it fears it has so much to do that of course it gets dead tired now knowing we have found a home for the mind makes a great deal of difference in our approach to daily living because knowing that there is a residual effect of the meditation the residual effect which in daily life protects us from our impulsive and negative reactions we know we can go home so we have that as a residual effect which lasts longer and longer during the day the longer we have been practicing the more often we do it as another very um favorable result from getting in there if we get really practiced at it we can do it any time any time anywhere so if we have to stand in line waiting for the bus in the rain we can do it we sit in the dentist waiting room we can do it and all these unpleasant situations are no longer a cause for concern they just are and there are more unpleasant situations than those but that needs practice everyday practice because that concentration that necessary concentration is easily lost the inside isn't lost but it goes back in the back of the mind where it's very hard to get at especially if we have put a boulder of skeptical doubt in front of it but concentration 
gets lost in no time at all. It's um, flexibility of the mind, malleability, softness of mind, comparable to yoga exercises for the body. If we do yoga exercises regularly, the body becomes more flexible and malleable. It is softer. We can bend it better. We stop. After a while, we've got to start all over again. Snaps back like a rubber band. Same with the mind. It snaps back like a rubber band. So we've got to start all over again. That's why daily practice is essential. I'll talk some more about the meditative absorptions at another time. At this point in time, we've got to go to the refectory. I would like to mention once more where, uh, to emphasize that this is a very special privilege that we are allowed to eat there. It's pr practically unheard of in a monastery. So we um, were really very fortunate that we were able to do that and that there, are, there isn't a single monk in the whole monastery that was against it. So that's rather unusual to say the least. I mean, they all know what we're doing and why we're doing it, and they're all for it. So that's very nice. I wish you a very pleasant meal. <laughs>